Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The president meeting with Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Union's president today, um, and saying the EU should drop all tariffs, barriers and subsidies, with the bloc's trade chiefs um, set to present him with proposals in that direction in a crunch meeting at the White House later today. And we're joined by a Morgan Stanley legend now, Stephen Roach, Yale University professor, joins us in New York. Um, good morning, Professor. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Richard Burner was a legend. I hired, you? I hired I, Richard Burner. There you Richard go. Richard Burner was a legend. So what does I that make Stephen him, Roach? Okay? You? I'm the father of a legend. Okay, there we go. Godly. <laughs> there you go. You've been slapped down this morning. Um, Professor, what's the minimum condition of success for a meeting like this today with the President of the United States and the European Union President meeting together? There's, there's not much, uh, Jonathan. The, the bar is pretty low. You know, in the last 24 hours, the President has said tariffs are great. And then he said he wants to propose to eliminate all tariffs. So if they're so great, why does he want to eliminate them? Uh, they're a negotiating ploy. He's the master of the art of the deal. Uh, right now, the art of the deal is giving us retaliation that requires subsidies by the U.S. Congress to deal with the retaliation being directed at U.S. farmers. That doesn't sound like such a great deal uh, to me, but, you know, um, well, it remains to be seen where where we're, we're headed here, but but the uh, for a, a global, interconnected world, uh, competing not by countries but by through supply chains yeah. and uh, the distribution of value added um, to multiple platforms around the world, this is a confusing, perplexing, challenging uh, time uh, with a lot of, of potential collateral damage along the way. So we have this situation at the moment with tariffs on automobiles and light trucks coming from Europe into the United States face a huge tariff. Then there's just sort of the basic light autos that we're used to talking about where the Europeans slap on a much bigger tariff than the United States slaps on. Can we get something done where we remove those barriers to entry? We remove those tariffs on automobiles and, and light trucks? You know, it, 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 anything is possible, uh, but, you know, it's, is this the way to get that done? Is the way to reduce tariffs uh, to, uh, to threaten to raise them much higher than they have been and to disrupt the supply chains, uh, which um, uh, is the essence of the production platform uh, for, the, for this key industry? So, uh, you know, anything mm -hmm. is possible, but I, w I wouldn't bet that this is the right way to get there. Do you just assume a GDP markdown? I mean, within all the fancy microeconomics, Paul Krugman's been great about showing uh, the, the different dynamics here and the wedges and the, you know, the geometry of tariffs and taxes. The answer is GDP goes south, right? Yeah, well, uh, uh, there's no question that, um, in, in my mind, that the global trade, which has gone... Um, you know, from 20 to 32, 33% of world GDP over the last 15 to 20 years uh, has, has been an engine of, of growth for developing and developed economies uh, alike. Global trade has been uh, sort of flat 
since the uh, the crisis is a share of, of world GDP. And so that's made it challenging to, to get uh, world GDP back to its uh, earlier well, pre-crisis growth rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if global trade really starts to unwind, right. then the headwinds become far more severe and the well, GDP impacts will become more acute, as you, you allude to. Dr. Roach, I know you're huge out on Twitter. We've got to respond. Have you respond, rather, to a presidential tweet this five minutes ago? Every time I see a weak politician asking to stop trade talks, or the use of tariffs to counter unfair tariffs, I wonder what can they be thinking, question mark. Are we just going to continue and let our farmers and country get ripped off, question mark. Lost $817 billion on trade last year. No weakness, exclamation point. Well, you know, I, I'm a broken record on this, Tom. The president plucks out trade as if it occurs in a vacuum as if it's a result of the way other countries treat us poorly. He doesn't get the fact that trade is the mirror image of our need for surplus savings from abroad that requires us to run balance of payments and multilateral trade deficits last year with 102 countries. That connection has never been made in um, the president's mind or in the mind of his advisors, which is even more shocking because presumably he hires uh, reasonably proficient uh, policy advisors on the economic and international finance front. Either they're afraid to talk to him or they don't get it either, which is, uh, or, or both. Very good. Stephen Roach, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Yale University. Not enough time. That's it. Stephen Aaron's joining us now. Bloomberg News Bank's reporter joins us from Frankfurt. Stephen, here's the number. The weakest second quarter in fixed income trading since the global financial crisis. The five largest U.S. investment banks saw total debt trading revenue rise by 6.7% over the same time span. When does this stop, Steve? Well, if you believe the CEO, it should stop in the next quarter. He said he's confident, very confident, in fact, um, that revenue in fixed income trading will now begin to rise. Um, admittedly, it's a it's actually a good compar- comparative for Deutsche Bank because um, fixed, um, fixed income trading was really weak last year in the final two quarters of 2017. Um, so he's got a bit of a comparative advantage there. Um, but of course, a lot of it depends on uh, where the cut uh, the cuts are taking place that they are um, executing in the bank right now. So um, I think we'll we'll need to see and wait for the next results. What is the catalyst to drag us out of what has been a vicious cycle over the last several years? A self-fulfilling vicious cycle where Deutsche Bank have to cut, then revenue falls, they have to cut some more. Are we really breaking out of that, Steve? Deutsche Bank certainly hopes, and the CEO, of course, most of all, hopes um, they can break out of the um, cycle. Uh, and yes, if they do if Christian Seving actually pulls off the feet of an increase in fixed income trading next quarter and maybe uh, the uh, the uh, 
next quarter after that, um, that could certainly be some sort of catalyst. Uh, and of course, if he um, reaches the financial targets he set, for example, um, cutting or keeping adjusted costs below 23 billion euros this year um, and reaching a return on tangible um, equity uh, of over 4% next year, um, that would certainly uh, be, uh, be progress as well. One of the bright spots today, quite clearly, was the advisory business doing quite well. What did you think of that, Steve? Um, they've been telling us for a long time that the advisory business is actually not doing so badly, um, and they always say it's it's a long pipeline. You know, um, I mean, when you uh, when you prepare a deal, a lot of work goes into that. It's a relationship business, um, and sometimes the revenue doesn't show up in the in the income statement until maybe a year or even two years later. Um, so it's it's good to see, obviously, um, but it's actually the fruit of labor uh, from maybe a year or two ago, uh, and now they're cutting um, corporate finance in the U.S. and Asia especially. Um, so we'll have to see how that affects the pipeline now. And that won't happen. Um, that won't be visible until maybe next year. I mean, part of the reason they keep people, particularly key employees, is stock. Uh, price to book on J.P. Morgan is 1.7. Price to book on Deutsche Bank is 0.3. I mean, mm. the, the disparity in valuation is extraordinary. Is this guy able to retain that top 10%, I'm going to call it 8,000 key employees. Ironically, the price the book actually helps in a, in a, in a, in a, weird, uh, in a weird way. Uh, many people at Deutsche Bank are extremely unhappy about the share price for understandable reasons because, you know, their pay yeah. packages depend on them. But since they're hired now and the price is so low, their pay packages, you know, their share, um, uh, their share options are are basically worthless. So many are sticking around and hoping the share price will re-rate at some Hope they price. get a pop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in a weird way, again, it helps. But, yeah, people are extremely ha- unhappy about right. it. Um, and if they have a chance to go somewhere else and trade in their share options right. for better ones in a different bank, I'm pretty sure many people right. think about that. Steve, quickly here, from your vantage point, balance how London and New York matter to Deutsche Bank Germany. Is it all about London? Is New York an afterthought? Or... Do they have an equal weight, or is there some nuance there I don't see? Um, I do think, I mean, New York is extremely important. Uh, London is still a bit closer, and many of the executives tend to be uh, in London more frequently. Goth Ritchie, who's uh, really important, head of the investment bank, lives in London. Um, so, I, you know, it's hard to say, obviously, soft factors and so on. Um it's hard to compare. I do think they're both really important, but the cuts, I think there are more cuts currently taking place in the U.S., so my sense is there's a bit of a shift away from the U.S., but uh, yeah. New York will, will remain a very important place for Deutsche Bank. Steve, thank you for the briefing. Learned a lot there. Steve Aarons in Frankfurt uh, with Wisdom on Deutsche Bank. Eileen Burge with us out of London. Uh, she knows American technology and, of course, has brought that over to great acclaim uh, in the United Kingdom. Is Well, you know, Eileen, it brings back all the emotion in all the past and present and even future of technology. Why are we still so riveted by space as a last frontier? That's a great question. You're always throwing me these curveballs. I love it. Um, I think it is just this sort of uncharted territory because so few people have tried to tackle it. And because of the capital expenditure required in order to try and address it, it's just 
then out of the reach of traditional innovators or obviously any kind of startups because of what you actually need to put together in order to right. get there. I mean, within this is, is government trying to do its thing, and, and, and certainly they're assisting here. But the John Farrow's really smart partition is in the Business Week cover. This seems to be relatively easy. And the, the technology process over the traditional manufacturing processes is still steeped in the old, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's, it's much as you said um, right before you kind of came over to me. It is about the number of parts uh, to kind of boil it down that way. And it is, you know, trying to get a sort of a new factory producing 300 cars a day, for example, has so much uh, at risk and so many potential points of failure that I think that uh, doing things at scale is what always sort of stymies even the best entrepreneurs. I'm just really um, enjoying Tom walking us through the launch. Where are we at the moment, Tom? Second stage out. It's a bright red cone, and they're going to go out. Uh, NASA showing some animation, but uh, we're at the second stage, which, John, goes down to really the technology here of why the U.S. did so better than the Soviets. Eileen, you know this from your engineering background. It's just about basic chemistry, basic physics, basic metals. These beasts that Mr. Musk is putting up in the air, they're way more sophisticated than what they dealt with with a Saturn V launcher, aren't they? No, absolutely. And I think you're also seeing people like Jeff Bezos doing similar work with rockets, right? And they're starting to now compete with one another on ego for that. But the technology has come around a long way. I think the bottom, the sort of underlying physics hasn't changed to your point earlier, right? They have to think about reentry. They have to think about what happens in the upper atmosphere. Um, But the methodologies and the manufacturing or fabrication that they can use to put together the and assemble the components has come a long way. Well, Eileen, this is no longer just about really rich men trying to get into space. This is about trying to create a business. What is the business that SpaceX is ultimately meant to be, and where's the competition coming from? Yeah, I think actually the competition, one of the reasons it was probably easier for Elon Musk is because it was such an open field. When the government, and I think when sort of you saw defense spending come down for space, um, and most of the commercial application Mm. then moved to satellites and communication technology, that's when he saw an opportunity to kind of go in there. Fortunately, he is heavily subsidized by the government still in the Defense Department, but I think the commercial opportunity is absolutely trying to figure out who wants to have access to um, being able to launch and deploy more sort of uh, communication-based satellites uh, for GPS or any other types of communication for private use. Eileen Burbage, thank you so much for a briefing. Great to bring her in with the technology side of all this. John Farrow and John Norman. John Norman, J.P. Morgan Head of Cross Asset Fundamental Strategy, joining us now. John, do we have a currency war brewing? I don't think that's the main issue. I think we definitely have a trade war, which is intensifying. That has some currency consequences, but the but the, but the main focus is really trade. When the president pushes back against the stronger dollar, what is that? I think it's uh, a reflection of his lack of understanding of the linkages amongst his, his policies. It's very difficult to have tax cuts, which are 
boosting growth and have tariff policies which are pushing down EM growth and not get a stronger dollar. So it's it's not obvious to me how he's going to square the circle if he wants a strong growth through tax cuts. He also wants this very punitive uh, tariff policy, but he also wants a weaker currency. John, are we anywhere near inflection points in selected pairs? Like if I say yen, 111.05 or euro, 116.91, are they in the vicinity of J.P. Morgan important points? I think you're closer to an inflection point, or, or I think you're actually tracing an inflection point in the euro. I'm not sure we're tracing one in the yen yet. I think for the euro, a, a precondition for the euro stabilizing and and maybe edging higher into year end was that the data improve in Europe, and that's happening. And, and, and the reason that's important is because it will reignite the, the debate about when the ECB should hike for the first time next year. The yen, I feel like, is still going to weaken somewhat because we, we do have a Fed, which is pretty minded to, to hike in September and, yeah. and keep going after that. So I think if you had to choose you know, one of these to be bottoming versus the dollar, it's, yeah. it's the euro you choose before the yen. John, I've got to do a surveillance correction, John Farrow. I said the late, great Al Hunt. I was thinking late because he used to come in late but be the first one in the office Re- in Washington. Reports of Al's hunt. I did not even Al's demise were greatly think, exaggerated. I, not for a moment did I actually think that's what you meant. I, I noticed it, and, and good old Marty Schenker said, Tom, you've got to do a it's, surveillance Someone reached out to correction. you wondering whether... Yes, oh, Al, has, <laughs> Al has messaged us. Al, Al, huh? Al messages Tom and says, was, I'm still here. <laughs> I was talking about late into the office, kind of, that got lost in surveillance translation. You're going to have to pick this up while I sit here it and says, It says dinner at the Palm Restaurant. <laughs> Thank you, Redo. John, why don't you go save us with John Norman? John Tucker or me? <laughs> After that one, it's pretty much all downhill. There's three Johns around a table. John Norman, um, let's get you back into the conversation and let's talk about China. What is your read and what is happening with the Chinese currency? Is this a Chinese set of authorities that are just accepting it, tolerating a weaker currency? Are they trying to engineer something? What's happening, John? I think what they're trying to do is uh, stabilize the economy, which was slowing, and they're doing that through monetary easing. And if you do that at a time when the Fed is tightening, you're more than likely to get a weaker currency. So even though the, the weaker currency is not the first-order objective, it, it's a consequence of their monetary policy decisions. So I, I think this is a pretty ordinary move. Um, I think the tough call is deciding how much weakness they're willing to tolerate as they ease monetary policy, because they're much more minded to tolerate very modest weakness, 5 6% per annum, versus a number of other emerging markets, which seem to be much more comfortable with 10 15% moves. So I, I think this is going to be kind of a low-digit, low-single-digit move for the, for the year, and you've had most of it already. But if they keep easy monetary policy and the Fed keeps tightening, you know, your bias is that the, the renminbi is going to edge lower. John, so far, this hasn't been that disruptive for global markets relative to what we saw in the summer of 15 and early 2016. Why not? Why is this different? And do you expect it to stay this way? I think some of the differences is that the the economy overall is in a, a, a firmer uh, position in, in China. There are newer growth sectors that have been offsetting an investment slowdown. And I think there also um, has been uh, a recognition that China has the foreign exchange reserves to control the speed at which the, the currency declines. So th- these, to me, are reasons why you can have a, a low volatility move down in the Chinese currency going forward rather than the, the, the sort of higher vol, more disruptive, contagious type move that we had in 2015. 
John, how's the EM doing? If I look at ADXY, the Pacific Rim uh, Index, X Japan, if I look at uh, your JP Morgan spot index of EM and all, how's EM faring right now? It's fairly mixed. I think there's clearly a divide opening up between the Asian currencies, many of which are making new all-time lows every week, and uh, other currencies, particularly Latin America, which are more stable, and this simply reflects different country-specific drivers. Mexico is looking a little more stable politically. That's why the, the currency is farming. Asia is clearly in, in the line of fire of the, the Trump administration. So I think if you look at broad indices, it, it, it can somewhat mask well, the, 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 the underlying stories that are a little more interesting. There's a, there's a whole lot of right. country differentiation well, in play but here. This is really important, John. I agree with you where you say Asia's in the line of fire, but my news flow tells me Europe's also in the line of fire. Is, is Europe the new Asia? in terms of trade upset? I, I don't think quite yet, but more in terms of magnitude than, than in terms of focus. It, it's clear the Trump administration has, has labeled Europe a foe, but it's not uh, suggesting that it's uh, going to pursue a, uh, a scale of, of, of tariffs on the order of what it's pursuing with, with China. So maybe it's just early days and Trump hasn't recognized mm-hmm. all the things he could do with respect to, to Europe yet. But it, it looks like China is a is a primary enemy and 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 the main focus in, in, right. in Europe is a, a slight sideshow. But you know there are no guarantees that that Europe can sort of leapfrog into the into the spotlight in the next couple of months. John Norman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. Right now. Pim Fox and Tom Keen uh, with you this morning. We're having a spirited conversation with Sri Kumar as we look at the American economy. Sri, I'm putting out on Twitter, you'll see it first on Bloomberg Radio, the separate lines of service sector inflation, which every single uh, listener knows is substantial, think 3.1%, and it's essentially been there forever. Uh, A lot of inflation every year in service sector. And then goods deflation which has been pretty moldy going back, you know, good, good 15 years, but with a new leg up right now, just below a 0% statistic, negative 0.2%. Sri, with all that's going on, are we going to finally see goods inflation, particularly because of tariffs slash taxes? Yeah, that is the danger, I think, eventually to both inflation and to the bond yields, Tom. Short term. It may not happen within the next six months because the global uncertainty is more likely to affect total demand and then slow the pace of economic growth. But if the tariffs persist into 2019, uh, then the higher costs get passed on at the wholesale and at the retail level, it passes on in the form of higher inflation. And then you have also the bond yields going up. That is then you have the true risk in 2019 of stagflation, similar to what you and I remember from 1973-74. You have a severe contraction in the economy as well as prices going up. Then it was because of a surge in global oil prices. And this time it may be an artificial increase in prices coming out of the trade sanctions. So what you say, Tom, is a real danger in terms of goods inflation for 2019, 
but I see the next few months as being relatively benign on that net on that framework. We can break out our whip inflation now, pins. Yeah, we, I still have them somewhere <laughs> in the you know, in the drawer at at home. And you know, Sri, you know, I'm glad you used that term. Remember, you know casting your mind back into history. And I'm wondering if we could just digress for just a second. And, you know, you used to work at the uh, Trust Company of the West. Uh, You went to Columbia University as well as Delhi uh, University. And now you've got your own firm. And I'm wondering if you could just offer some insight or detail as to what it was like to make that switch to running your own shop and what you can offer to people who may be thinking of doing the same thing in their own specific discipline. Thank you, Pim. I'm happy to do that. Uh, The first thing I think that helps is to have a little bit of experience behind you so that you do not want to start out very fresh. I did try some 35 years ago to start my own consulting. That was on Latin American debt in the early 80s. Uh, The first year and a half was tough going Beyond that, once people found out that this was a new area, that the debt crisis was going to continue, then the clientele very quickly developed. Uh, The second time around has been a lot easier. It has been easier because another 35 years have passed by. Uh, So the advice that I would give is, first of all, make sure, especially if you are younger than me, to have enough of a a bank balance to hold you through for a year and a half to two years, uh, even if you were to go easy on your spending. Second, keep your Rolodex open. Keep in terms of talking to different people in the same area. And third, I would say stay very focused. Rather than say, I'm going to be all things to all possible clients, decide where your strengths are, focus on it, make sure that there is going to be enough demand for those services, and stay focused in that area. Those would be, uh, Pim, very much three or four pieces of advice that I would pass on. Very useful. I want to pick up on one thing you'd said, which is a new area at the time it was Latin American debt. Would cryptocurrencies be a new area? Should people be looking for that new area now? I think there is a significant difference. When In the early uh, 80s, when the debt crisis took place in Mexico, passing on to other countries, you knew that these countries eventually were going to come back to help, but you knew the crisis was going to be for a long time. I wouldn't put cryptocurrencies on the same plane, Pim. The reason is I think it is more comparable to the Dutch tulip mania of 1637 that you just bid up the price substantially until eventually the whole thing just drops out. If that's the case, you may have a future in looking at specific countries because as my old uh, Citibank uh, late chairman Walter Riston used to say, countries don't go bankrupt. But that's not true of a cryptocurrency. And that's where this job could come to an abrupt end if cryptocurrency alone mm. turns out to be the focus of the new consultant. Come on, you mentioned 1637. Let's drive forward all of 50 years to 1680. And I use that really one of the essays of the year, Catherine Rempel in the Washington Post doing a nice clinic on mercantilism. Is that really all we're talking about, Kamal? Is the president's nostalgia for a zero-sum mathematics, a non-marginalia within economics, where we just bombarded ourselves back to a discourse from pre-revolutionary America? 
That's a good comparison, Tom, because again, when you go back to mercantilism, it was always a case of beggar thy neighbor policy because trade was seen as a zero-sum game. Your trade surplus is my loss, so I have to have a trade surplus and inflict a deficit on your country. Uh, That seems to be, again, the very same principle that's being done. Trade deficit is seen immediately as having been cheated out by the trade partners. Um, That is not going to work. Mercantilism simply didn't work because it led to too many trade conflicts. Mercantilism was again tried, Tom, going even future into the future from 1680. It was tried in 1930s. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of June 1930 increased tariffs in the United States. The objective was a good one, to try to protect American farmers. And, but what it turned out to do was to cause a retaliation by the trade partners, and very soon there was no victor. And so my fear here is unless we change the attitude, if we continue with the mercantilist policies currently, there will be no, uh, no victors, and particularly the global recession that people fear may become a reality. But, Sri, you said earlier that the U.S. economy is basically self-contained. The U.S. economy is self-contained, but what happened, But still you have a, a significant chunk of large companies, PIM, S&P 500 companies, you're talking about 45 to 50 percent of earnings coming from abroad. That has a hit. So what happens now is that even though exports are a small part of the overall economy, uh, for some corporations, they are a big part of earnings. So eventually, it then feeds down in terms of reduced employment, reduced hiring, and then it shows up on, uh, in terms of the stock market behavior, and then there is a fallout on the overall economy. Mm. So you don't have it immediately as an export GDP ratio measurement, PIM, but you have it when you look at the secondary and tertiary effects of the changes. Sri, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, your work with us here at Bloomberg Surveillance. Greatly appreciate it. Sri Kumar on the American economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.